Coming to a trench near you, Naked Archaeology. Hello and welcome to Naked Archaeology with me, Diana O'Carroll. This month I'll be looking at underwater archaeology and burials, including the oldest burial of a TB victim. The sea levels rose and covered all the area. The burials were then covered with silt, mud, clay, and it meant that the bones were kept at a constant temperature, rather cold, and probably no oxygen at all, and that is a very good environment for the bones to be preserved. That's Helen Donoghue, who identified the DNA of the oldest known case of human TB. And she'll be talking in just a moment. Another underwater story comes in the form of some new technology being pioneered in the States. They've developed a number of very interesting sensors that they put on these AUVs, which are really underwater robots that they program to search an area, and these things can go out and search an area and automatically identify targets on the bottom uh, based on features and actually send little snippet pictures back to the ship so people can actually watch this stuff coming in real time. So look out for a whole host of new maritime finds in the future. I'll be speaking to Frank Cantellas very soon, when I'll also be finding out about the new Babylon exhibition at the British Museum. Naked Archaeology, exposing the finds. First up this month is a striking find in the form of ancient tuberculosis. According to the World Health Organization, TB was responsible for the death of 1.5 million people in 2005. But how long has this disease been with us? Well, now researchers in Israel and the UK have identified the earliest confirmed human case. I spoke to Helen Donahue to find out more. Well, we've just published a paper in PLOS One and we found what we believe to be the earliest case of human tuberculosis that's been confirmed by biomolecular methods rather than just being based on changes to the bones. And that dates from 9,000 years before now. When did people used to think TB originated? Well, there were quite a few ideas. I mean, perhaps I should just explain that tuberculosis was one of the first diseases to be recognised from bones, and there are some very characteristic changes that take place. But you get a collapsed spine, which is very typical, something called Potts disease, and this was found in ancient Egyptians. And, in fact, the very earliest case of tuberculosis that there's no doubt about that's been verified by several different techniques is from the Pleistocene 17 and a half thousand years ago and in fact it was found in a Pleistocene bison. I suppose because they found it in bison there has been this theory that it comes from um, domesticated cattle and that when people started farming that this is how they contracted TB. Yes, that's what they always used to think, because if you look for these bony changes, you only start finding them in any number once domestication took place. But as soon as people understood the genetic composition of the bacteria and they compared the 
strains of bacilli that cause the disease in humans with those found in cattle and other animals, they realised that that was very unlikely to be what actually happened. And that's because the human lineage, the human strains of tuberculosis, they've got more ancestral pattern in their DNA. The animal strains, we can catch them quite easily. Human people catch the animal form of the disease by drinking infected milk from infected animals. There was no pottery in this settlement, so no milk, no cheese, no yoghurt. There was none of that going on. So we think that the animals were important because it enabled a, a higher population of people to be gathered in that one settlement. Tuberculosis is a disease. It's mainly a lung infection. Uh, you catch it by breathing in an infected, dried little drop of mucus from somebody else who's coughed it up or just breathed it into the air by talking in a room. And so the denser the population is, the more crowded the housing, the more people there are, the easier it is for tuberculosis to be maintained and spread amongst that population. Traditionally, scientists have always looked at skeletons from, from anything um, sort of pre-100 years ago to assess whether TB was present because obviously <coughs> POTS disease is quite a clear indicator, but POTS disease only happens in skeletons once TB is very advanced, doesn't it? So these new genetic methods, can you tell me a little bit more about how you applied these to this 9,000-year-old skeleton? Well, the, the first thing is you've got to have a skeleton or a specimen to work with that's been well-preserved. And we were really lucky because the particular bones we looked at were from material that had been buried at the bottom of the sea off the coast of Haifa in present-day Israel. And the archaeologists actually had to excavate it all by scuba diving. So the co-authors on the paper, Israel Hershkovitz and Ehud Galili, they were the people who found the bones, saw the lesions and recognised them for what they might be. And the reason why it's so crucial to get well-preserved material is that DNA is not a very stable molecule. It can be damaged by exposure to oxygen, it can be damaged by exposure to a warm, watery environment. But what happened with these bones is that they were in a pre-pottery Neolithic settlement. It was called Atlit Yam, and it looks as though the settlement was abandoned shortly before the sea levels rose and covered all the area the burials were then covered with silt, mud, clay, and it meant that the bones were kept at a constant temperature, rather cold, and probably no oxygen at all. And that is a very good environment for the bones to be preserved. So how do you know that it's not new DNA, that it is actually old DNA that you're looking at? Well, the obvious thing is that old DNA fragments when you heat it to separate out the DNA strands, it shatters into lots of very, very small pieces and you find that you can only amplify very, very short fragments. So if you get very long fragments, you know you've got something wrong. I see. So now that we know that TB has been around for quite a bit longer than was once thought, how can we use this information? What can we do with it? Well, the interesting thing from my point of view is that 
we did manage to find that we had the human strain and not the animal strain. And that's the first time that's been done in any samples older than the ancient Egyptians. So ancient Egyptians go back to, say, three and a half thousand years BC. Well, we're going back at least 3,000 years older than that. It was gratifying to find that it was not the ancestral form. It is the form that has got a particular deletion that identifies it as a lineage which is common in the world today. There are many of these strains around now, and they were around 9,000 years ago. Uh, so you can use our study to give a marker in real time of what before our study had just been hypothetical ancestral inferences. So it's likely we'll find even older cases of TB in the future. That's Helen Donoghue from University College London. From a burial under the sea to a very special type of burial also from Israel. Every so often, archaeologists unearth a burial that really stands out. In the UK, the Amesbury Archer near Stonehenge, the so-called Red Lady of Haviland, and Sutton Hoo are just a few examples. But now, in the southern Levant, Lior Grossman and colleagues have found a similarly special grave. Well, we have several burials on site. Most of the burials are in three pits, in fact. And also there's, uh, there are two other articulated primary burials but the most unique burial is the burial that is discussed now, the shaman burial, how we call it, which is in one of the structures on site, and it was carved in bedrock and plastered with mud, and it was, in fact, the first burial on the site. What's so special, apart from the fact that this is the earliest burial, what's so special about this one? Well, first of all, the burial was by its own there. It's the, the skeleton, only she was buried inside this oval-shaped grave, and the large effort they made for carving this grave inside the rock and plastering it. And then also all the special items they put with her, in particularly 50 tortoises, a wing of a golden eagle, and also two skulls of martens, which were probably attached to the fair, and also the fair was probably covering the woman also. Under her right arm, we had bones of a wild pig, and only parts of the bones of the pig, which were before opened and marrow was extracted, meaning that after the feast or the cutting up of the pig, they collected, they sorted only two bones of the leg and put it under her arm. There is also a piece of basalt ball, that was probably her ball that was used by her because it had a very uh, distinct sheen on it and it was put next to her. Finally, just under the slab that sealed the grave, there was a foot of another person. Right, so that's a very specific list of objects. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds quite unusual. So yes. what could all this stuff mean together in this burial? Okay, so all this stuff together, it's unique. We haven't found something similar. So we looked for reference in order to understand all this. And the closest thing, the first thing for sure, is that this woman had a unique position in the society, a special position in the society. And looking at ethnography and in, in other present-day societies, we see that 
but uh, in shamanism, it is very important the connection with the animal life because the shaman, his role in the society is to connect or mediate between the individual and the community and the community as a whole with the spirits. And sometimes it's been done with many animals. And because of these connections and because it's a practice that is usually related to hunters and gatherers, we think we have a burial of a shaman. So there's nothing else like this in the area? Uh, no, no, we don't have in this region any similar burial, not in the Paleolithic and in particular not from the Natufian culture, which I'm excavating. How can we explain this? Do you think it's a one-off in the Natufian or do you think there are more to be found? Well, I'm almost sure there's more to be found and I'm sure this is the first to, to come because shamanism probably was part of the practice of that day. And I'm not saying even that there weren't shamans before during the Paleolithic, but in the Natufian there was some kind of a cultural change and, and it's not really surprising that we're finding shamans in the Natufian because many things are special and uh, are first to be found during the Natufian after all the Paleolithic. For the first time we find architecture in the Natufian. We also find burials in the Natufian, which is quite rare in cultures before. That's the 12,000-year-old Natufian burial interpreted as shaman because of the specific selection of grave goods. That was Lior Grossman from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Like this excavation, most archaeology is conducted on land, but increasingly challenging digs are going on in the oceans. Unfortunately, as air-breathing land mammals, there's only so far we can go. So now a team from NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the US, are trialling some new exploration technology. I spoke to Frank Cantellus to find out more. Well, this past summer, we uh, co-hosted a technological demonstration in, in Rhode Island to demonstrate the use of advanced undersea technology that the Navy is developing for mine warfare or mine hunting to use that technology in underwater archaeology. And the platforms they use to use this technology are on autonomous underwater vehicles or AUVs. And they've developed a number of very interesting sensors that they put on these AUVs, which are really underwater robots that they program to search an area. And these things can go out and search an area and automatically identify targets on the bottom uh, based on features and actually send little snippet pictures back to the ship so um, people can actually watch the stuff coming in real time. But we used some of these this technology also on a number of shipwrecks, including two British frigates that were lost in Rhode Island during the Revolutionary War. And uh, they had a range of technologies, a number of different types of sonar, which will image things that are above the bottom of the seafloor, um, shipwreck stuff that you might normally see in a, a book or a magazine. But they can also find things buried below the seafloor using magnetic signatures, or they can acoustically image things buried under the seafloor, kind of like com computer tomography or, or using ultrasound, in that they can actually image things like cannon or the ship itself buried under the seafloor and, and give give some indication of the artifacts there. And what that really allows 
the archaeologists to do is, is to investigate a site without actually excavating it or removing artifacts, which can be very expensive. So this isn't just one AUV then? We actually used eight or nine different AUVs. And uh, so we had a, a wide selection of different sonars and, and imaging devices. There were cameras and video cameras, as I mentioned, different types of sonar, which are actually instruments that use sound that make a ping and the sound wave goes out and it's reflected back to a receiver on the AUV or the sonar and the computers process that into an image. And there are all kinds of different types of sonars that they were experimenting with. And some of them were extremely high resolution sonars that gave very good images of very small objects underwater. Other sonars that could map just tremendously broad areas and pick out small targets there that would be good for surveying, for shipwrecks or, or other cultural resources or natural features as well. So what's this about the Okeanos Explorer? Um, apparently this can go down to depths of 6,000 metres. Our office will actually have its own ship of exploration and it's tasked with basically exploring the world's oceans and it's able to work down to 6,000 meters. In that respect, what it has on board to do that is an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle that can work down to 6,000 meters and actually probably reach about 95% of the, the ocean floor in, in the world. So we're actually capable of exploring a large range of, of the world's ocean. And the ship will initially go out and map the bottom of the ocean using a uh, a brand new, newly designed multi-beam system, which is an acoustic mapping system using sound. And then once we find something down there, a target of interest, we'll send the ROV down to take a look at it. Fantastic. Sounds very exciting. Um, so do you have any planned trips, any planned excavations, sort of new things that you're going to look at soon? Well, specifically for the archaeology program, we funded a number of projects this summer that ranged from looking at submerged prehistoric sites that in areas that were dry land during the last ice age and now submerged by rising sea levels following the last glacial period, all the way from doing that to exploring for a slave ship called the Troubadour down in the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean to looking at a naval battle on Lake Champlain. That was Frank Cantellus with the latest in underwater robots which could be used to scout and map previously unexplored archaeology. You can find out more about their scheme on their website, that's noaa.gov. In a moment I'll be catching up with the British Museum for a bit of archaeology in my own backyard. First, though, to a question sent to me from Gordon. He asked, where does all the dirt come from that covers archaeological sites? The answer is, it comes from just about everything that's around it. Plants will grow on ruins, their leaves will fall off and decay to form soil. Eventually, the plants themselves will die off and decay. Also, soil and sand from elsewhere can be blown onto a site. It can be eroded from the surrounding hills and washed down by water onto any archaeology. Rocks will also erode and eventually make up a constituent of soil. Also, rivers can wash a whole pile of alluvium, a very silty sort of soil, onto your site if it's in a valley or floodplain. 
It's reckoned that, on average, it takes 500 years for a layer of soil one inch thick to be formed, but I think that depends on how hilly your site is. But if you have any archaeology questions, then do let me know, and I'll do some digging to find the answer. You can email diana at thenakedscientists.com. Well, this month I've let our resident backyard archaeologist go free so that he can continue his excavations in Turkey. But that gave me an opportunity to head to the British Museum in London to find out more about their new exhibition. Well, it shows lots of things all at once. We've decided that we would start with Babylon as it really was in antiquity, when Nebuchadnezzar was the king, the famous Nebuchadnezzar, and show the public a bit about the reality of life in Babylon at that time, and then follow the story from then on, looking at the various famous myths associated with Babylon, like the Hanging Gardens or the Tower of Babel, and Mad Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, how Babylon was the most sinful place in the world, and see where these ideas come from and how justified they might be, and also to look at what artists did with these ideas and the great painters that have done works to do with it, and then bring it right up to date uh, into the modern world with modern artists who work with it, and also to stop for a moment on the way and look at things to do with science or mathematics that have come from Babylon, which still are perceptible in our modern society. So quite a long and complicated story, and it starts at one end and wanders all the way through, and that's the end of it. Okay, so there's the legend of Babylon, and there's the actual archaeology of the the city itself. Mm -hmm. So could you tell me a little bit about the city? Well, Babylon in its heyday, in the 6th century BC, when Nebuchadnezzar was king, was a really vast city. It was perhaps like Chaucerian London in size. One has to imagine it as a really major city in the modern sense. And it was lost um, to modern knowledge entirely. It was extinct and buried until, really, the end of the 19th century when serious archaeology began there and German um, archaeologists and architects excavated... Um, some of the major buildings which had been left behind by Nebuchadnezzar, which were still restorable, and they produced a tremendous uh, structure, the so-called processional way in the Ishtar Gate and part of the walls of Babylon, which brought to life in a startling way um, how magnificent it was and why it was so famous in its own time. So everybody's heard of the Tower of Babel, but did this actually exist? Well, the Tower of Babel, in one sense, definitely did exist, because right in the middle of Babylon was a stepped temple tower called a ziggurat. looks a bit like a giant wedding cake. It was about 70 metres tall, and right at the top there was a shrine where a high priest, perhaps, or the king would communicate with heaven above. And it was a kind of communication network between the human world and the divine world. And this ziggurat towered over the ancient city of Babylon, something like 70 metres above the plain. And it was this building that was certainly behind the story in the book of Genesis about the Tower of Babel, which was interrupted, the work on it was interrupted, and all the languages were spread over the world as a punishment for human arrogance. And the idea of it and the description of it in the Old Testament passage surely reflects this ancient building. And we know what it looked like, even though it doesn't exist anymore, because all the bricks in antiquity were taken away, so that all was actually was left on the ground was the kind of plan of it. But the architects measured that very carefully. And starting from that and using evidence from a surprisingly uh, exact ancient resources, that's to say cuneiform tablets with uh, measurements of the different parts of the ziggurat written down in the ancient inscription, it's possible to combine that and some ancient drawings in order to produce a modern 
reconstruction which really gives you an idea. But the ruins of Babylon are in Iraq, so what's happened to them? Well, there's been a lot of world attention focused on very recent damage to the site in the aftermath of the war. A military camp was installed right in the middle of the capital city with scant regard for the archaeology which was all around. And it was not only that, um, soil was moved from different places, trenches were dug, the land was flattened, the chemical toilets and helicopter pads and all sorts of things, and very heavy vehicles trundling to and fro, which must have done a very great deal of damage. And in fact, the full extent of the damage has not yet really been appreciated, and it can only be done when everything's cleaned off and the archaeologists do a proper survey and they see what's what. But there's no doubt about it, it was exceptionally irresponsible and very destructive for the site. That was Irving Finkel, curator at the British Museum. And there are some fantastic items on display, including a written record of the transformation from a polytheistic religion to a monotheistic one, i.e. many gods into one. There are also records of the original 60 minutes hour, and there are also bricks stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name on. You can see that and a whole host of fantastic other items at the British Museum, and that display will be on until the 15th of March 2009. Well, that's it for Naked Archaeology this month, but I hope you'll join me again next time. Laying the artefacts bare. Naked Archaeology.